Good morning. If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to the book of Nahum, chapter 2. Nahum, chapter 2. We're going to see together this morning that the God of the Bible is the God who commands history. The God of the Bible is the sovereign God who controls all things. All things. There isn't a single solitary atom in all creation that is outside the sovereign control of the Almighty. As the late R.C. Sproul would say, there are no maverick molecules. God has, from eternity past, planned the future of all things. In the 1689 London Confession of Faith, it states this about God and His control. God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. All things whatsoever comes to pass have been decreed by God Himself from all eternity. At the Lord's command, and according to His eternal plan, all events take place. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. We experience well-being or calamity. No detail is too small to escape His will. It is by the Lord's control that the raven is fed, that the sparrow falls, that the lot is cast, and that the dice is rolled. Paul describes God in the opening chapter of Ephesians as being the one who works all things after the counsel of His will. History is made at God's command. Did you know that 27% of the Bible is prophecy. 27% of the Bible was prophecy when it was written. The Bible contains 1,817 prophecies of one kind or another. And prophecy is just pre-written history. Now that kind of hurts your brain to think about a little bit, but that's what it is. Prophecy is the record of what happened before it happens. Prophecy is possible because God knows the end from the beginning, doesn't He? And as the sovereign one who controls all things, God commands history. And the Bible is filled with examples of this. God promised Abraham that from he and his wife Sarah would come many descendants. He promised that to them when they were advanced in age, beyond the age of being able to have children. And this promise was fulfilled, of course we know, to Abraham, God did it. Or how about the fact that God predicted the rise and fall of four successive world empires in Daniel chapter 2? The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, their rise and fall were all predicted beforehand, and it happened just as God had revealed it would, and in exactly the right order. Better yet, how about the Bible's 
specific prediction that a future Medo-Persian king named Cyrus would take the throne and allow God's people to return to Jerusalem from their captivity in Babylon, including a prediction of the precise name of that king 150 years before Cyrus was ever born. It may seem at times like things are chaotic and that the world is somehow spinning out of control. But rest assured, God is on the throne. He is ruling and directing all things to bring about His perfect purposes. And yes, that includes in your life and mine. All the various details of your life and mine are superintended, are overseen by, are governed by, and controlled by a sovereign God who rules from heaven and He rules in goodness and kindness with a view to blessing His people. Rest assured, God is on the throne. In our text this morning, we're going to see another example of God commanding history. God, through the prophet Nahum, predicts the fall of Assyria and the destruction of its capital city, Nineveh, 30 years before any of these things ever occurred. This prediction came at the very time when Assyria was at its strongest. And yet, as we will see, all things happen just as Nahum foretold. The truth that God commands history should be a matter of great concern for the unbeliever, for they will one day face His judgment if they do not repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the believer, the truth that God commands history should be a great peace and a source of great confidence knowing that God is on His throne and that He is working actively every day, every moment, for our blessing, for our good, and ultimately for our joy. So look with me at Nahum chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 3, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. As we see the God who commands history in action. Nahum chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of His mighty men are colored red, The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves, beating their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? 
The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our sovereign God and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call on you who command history as our Father. We're grateful, Lord, that you have taken away the enmity that separated us. You've taken it away through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the truth of the gospel, the good news that all our sins can be forgiven and we can be made right with you. We thank you that we no longer have to face the certainty of coming judgment, but that Christ Jesus faced it for us on the cross. So show us Christ this morning. Show us in Nahum chapter 2 the fact that you are in control, Lord God, and that by your Son you have set and appointed a time when you will judge the nations. Help us be ready for that day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we walk through this unusual chapter together, we're going to see three faith-building details surrounding the fall of Nineveh. Three faith-building details surrounding the fall of Nineveh. First of all, we see the settled certainty of Nineveh's future destruction. It's a settled certainty. Here in chapter 2, Nahum describes in vivid, fast-paced detail the destruction of this ancient city. He writes it in the present tense as though he is observing the action from a nearby lookout where he can, from the safety of his perch, see both sides of the wall of Nineveh. He can see the advancing troops on the outside. He can see the defenses from the inside. He can see it all taking place. He writes like a war correspondent, sending dispatches from the front lines, except for the fact that he writes here in poetry rather than prose. This is a prophetic ode to Nineveh's future destruction. Nahum writes here, obviously, what God has revealed to him. The book began by stating that this is an oracle of the vision that Nahum saw. Nahum is writing around 640 B.C. We know from historical accounts that the fall of Nineveh occurred on August 10th, 612 B.C. So Nahum is writing of the coming downfall and destruction of Nineveh and of the nation of Assyria nearly three decades before any of this took place. That makes these descriptions of Nineveh's destruction prophetic. This is the pre-recording of history. In less than 30 years, the great nation of Assyria and the great city of Nineveh will be brought down and it will be ground into rubble. So great was its destruction that the city of Nineveh became almost lost to history and was even thought by some to be just a myth until its rediscovery by archaeologists in 1847, confirming yet again the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible. 
You can trust the Word of God. Throughout verses 3 through 10 of chapter 2, Nahum records what he sees using the present tense. Though these events lie far ahead in the future. He doesn't speak here of what will happen in the future. Nahum speaks of these future events as though they were happening right now, in the present time, in front of his very eyes, underscoring the certainty that these still future events will indeed take place. It's as though they're happening right now. Isaiah made similar predictions about Assyria's downfall. Isaiah 14, 24 through 27 Here is what the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned it, so it will stand, to break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out against all nations." For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Isaiah and Nahum write together with one purpose and one aim to present God as the all-powerful ruler over all things, over all nations, over all events, and that nothing and no one can stop him from accomplishing his purposes. The settled certainty of the prediction of Nineveh's future destruction and its eventual fulfillment should serve to strengthen our faith in the God who commands history. So that's the first faith-building detail. The second is this, the incredible specificity of Nineveh's future destruction. Let's look at a few of these details that come from this eyewitness account of a still future event. The first thing you may notice when you're reading verses 3 through 10 is that it's sometimes hard to tell who Nahum is talking about. There are pronouns used without it being clear who the antecedent is. Nahum will just sometimes say he or she, and we don't know really who he's talking about. It's quite likely that this ambiguity is intentional, that Nahum is using it as a kind of poetic device, communicating the confusion that often takes place in hand-to-hand combat, in the thick of battle. We call it the fog of war. In verse 3, we read of the attacking army as it assembles itself outside the great walls of Nineveh. Their shields are red and the soldiers are dressed in scarlet. We know from Ezekiel 23.14 that the Babylonians wore red in battle. So this is likely talking about the attacking Babylonian army which has assembled itself and joined forces with the Medes and the Scythians to go to war against Assyria and lay siege to the great city of Nineveh. Next we read in verse 3 that the chariots were enveloped in flashing steel. Chariots, in some ways, functioned like tanks in the ancient world. There was armor. You could advance quickly. And here they are pictured with their polished steel gleaming in the bright sunshine. They are ready for battle. They are ready for war. They've made all the necessary preparations to be successful. And the soldiers march with their long cedar spears in hand, 
ready to attack with the lance. Verse 4. Now the scene changes from outside the walls on offense to inside the walls and defense. More chariots are mentioned, but this time they are pictured as racing to and fro in a kind of panic. The inhabitants of the city and the soldiers defending her have been caught off guard. They are under attack and the whole city is losing its mind. Look at verse 5. Again, we see this intentional ambiguity here with regard to who's being referenced. Poetically communicating the fast-paced and often confusing back and forth of military attack. It's possible that the first half of the verse is referring to those inside the walls with the king calling upon his nobles and his officers to man the defenses and all of them scurrying about in confusion, stumbling to their defensive positions. The last half of the verse is probably referring to the attackers outside the walls, hurrying to the wall in order to set up a mantlet. Now, I don't know what that is. I didn't know what it is. I know what it is now. I'm about to tell you what it is. If you don't know what it is, we'll learn together. A mantlet is basically a protective covering set up near the base of a wall where attacking soldiers can work to create a breach in a defensive wall. This would protect them, this covering, this mantlet, would protect them from arrows that might be shot from above or from rocks or hot liquids that might be poured out on them from above. In those days, there were basically three ways to breach a defensive wall. You could build a ramp over the wall. That's what the Romans did at Masada. You can try to tunnel under the wall. That's a difficult thing to do. Or you can try to ram your way through the wall, and that is what they're likely trying to do here, making preparations to ram a hole through the wall. In verse 6, we read, however, that the gates of the rivers are opened. And that the palace is dissolved away, washed away, as the river was redirected toward the wall causing a vast breach in it. It's like a child's diorama built out of sugar cubes. You ever have to do that in school? You know, build some kind of a a castle or a house or maybe a, a mission building or something like that. Except this child's diorama is left out in the rain and it just dissolves into a pool of goo. That's the idea here. The the great palace of the great king of Assyria is going to be dissolved and melted away into obscurity and will be covered over by the sands of time, forgotten by the world for millennia, all by the word of the Lord. The great Greek historian Theodorus Siculus recorded that a series of rains flooded the mighty Tigris River, causing it to overrun its banks resulting in a breach in the wall of Nineveh two miles in length. Now that is a defensive problem. If you've got a two-mile gap in your hundred-foot-tall wall, it might as well be that you have no wall. Allowing the armies outside to invade. Nineveh, or sorry, Nahum, alluded to this breach of Nineveh's walls by water earlier chapter 1, look back with me at chapter 1, verse 8. 
God declares, but with an overwhelming flood, he, Yahweh, will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. An overflowing flood. Verse 7 states abruptly that it is fixed. It is established. It is a settled certainty. It is as good as done. Nineveh's fate is sealed. Sealed by God who cannot lie. And it was thus predicted its demise. Isaiah 37, 26 says this, Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. And that is what the Lord has fixed and determined for the city of Nineveh. Next, verse 7 refers to a she. It's probably a reference to Nineveh's number one god, the goddess Ishtar. The goddess's statue would have been humiliated by taking it from her temple and carrying it away by Nineveh's enemies. This is something invading armies would routinely do. They would go immediately to the temples and they would sack the temples. They would would take all of the gods out of the temples and carry them off to their own homelands as a token of their victory. The Philistines did this with the Ark of the Covenant and they quickly regretted it. 1 Samuel 5 tells the humorous story of what took place when the Ark of God came up against their god, Dagon. You can read it later. The handmaids of Ishtar and of the king are pictured here in verse 7 as weeping and moaning in the face of their imminent defeat. They're beating on their breasts as a sign of their mourning and of the dread of what is to come. Look at verse 8. Previously, Nineveh was like a pool of water, as calm as glass, calm within her firm banks of defensive walls that were 100 feet tall and 30 feet thick. But now there is panic everywhere. People are fleeing and wailing. Soldiers are deserting their posts. People yell, stop, stop, but no one listens or turns back because the time of defense has passed. Now it's every man for himself. Now it's time to head for the hills. Now it's time to run for your life. Verse 9 shifts to the invading army who've now breached the wall and they're inside the city and they're crying out to one another, plunder the city, plunder the gold. Nineveh was the richest city in the world. Assyria had done an incredible job of raiding the countryside and of taking the plunder of the surrounding nations as they defeated them one by one by one, picking them off and carrying their riches home with them. Well, now all of Nineveh's riches are ripe for the picking. To the victor goes the spoils. Verse 10 summarizes the fall of mighty Nineveh. She is emptied. The once great city has been looted, reduced to rubble. Her inhabitants are all either dead or captured or have fled. 
And the absolute terror of this invasion can be seen in the body language and on the faces of the remaining Assyrian people. Hearts are melting, knees are knocking, anguish in the whole body with ashen faces of fear and disbelief. The world's great superpower has been defeated and she never saw it coming. Verse 11 and 12 employ a poetic metaphor to further describe Nineveh's fall. It's a picture of lions. The Syrians loved the image of lions. And if you ever go to a museum and you see something about ancient Assyria, it's likely you'll see carvings of lions. Lions featured prominently in their art. Lions are the top of the food chain. Lions are the king of the jungle. And from the safety of their den, lions all eat together. Lion, lioness, the young They all eat together the prey that's been hunted and torn to pieces and brought back to the lair. But verse 11 asks the question, where is the lion's den? It's been destroyed. It's crumbled. The lion's den of Nineveh has been destroyed and the lions have been destroyed along with it. They've been defanged. A long period of Assyrian dominion, cruelty, slaughter, and pillage has come to an abrupt end. Their time is up and their pride has been destroyed by the God who commands history. What we have in verses 3 through 12 is a play-by-play of Assyria's demise. The downfall of the world's first superpower. Remember, the things that are being written here in Nahum won't actually transpire for another 30 years. Assyria, at the time Nahum is writing, is still at its zenith of power and domination. Assyria was not on the downgrade at this point. It was still on the uprise, still rising in strength. And this is why it all must have seemed so unreal to Nahum's readers and listeners. Perhaps it seemed even laughable. How could the great Assyrian army be bested? How could the city of Nineveh with its 30-foot thick walls, 100 feet tall, ever be destroyed? How was any of this even possible? Well, friends, when you're tempted to doubt God and how things could possibly happen that He's predicted... Remember what Jesus said, that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nothing is difficult for God. Nothing. He raises up leaders and nations and He brings them down according to His timetable for the accomplishment of His purposes. That's because God commands history. Daniel 2.21 says, It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It's the wise person and the person of understanding who realizes that God is the one who commands history. The specificity of Nineveh's future destruction and the fact that it indeed happened 30 years later, just as Nahum described it here, should build our faith in the God who commands history. It should build our faith in His promises. It should build our faith in His prophecies. And it should build our faith in His power to do what to us seems utterly impossible. 
to God, nothing is impossible because he is the God who commands history. Thirdly, a third faith-building detail from the destruction of Nineveh is how we see the ultimate authority behind Nineveh's future destruction. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Ultimately, Nineveh, we know, wasn't destroyed because of the alliance between the Babylonians and the Medes and the Scythians. Ultimately, Assyria wasn't brought down by a torrent of water that was unleashed against her walls and that flooded her majestic palaces and temples. Ultimately, what brought Nineveh to destruction and Assyria to her knees was Yahweh, the divine warrior, commanding history. God, the holy and just judge of all the earth, had announced his guilty verdict against this wicked city and the result was its utter destruction. God says in verse 13, Behold, Assyria, Nineveh, I am against you. Beloved, I cannot think of any more terrifying words than those. For the Lord of hosts, the Lord who commands all things, who commands angelic armies, to say, behold, I am against you. And the truth is, as long as we stay in our sins and our rebellion against the God who made us, God is against us. Our sin has made us His enemies. Our sin has separated us from God and made us justly deserving of the judgment that He has pronounced over us. But God, in His mercy and grace, has provided a way for us to go from being His foes to being His friends. From being his enemies to being his emissaries. To go from being his adversaries to being the objects of his divine affection. James 4, 6 says this, that God is a pro opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To those who are humble enough to confess their sin, and repent of their life of rebellion, God offers grace and forgiveness abundant in supply through His Son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died for you and for me, who faced God's just judgment and God's just wrath against our sins so that we might be accepted by God and made friends and more than friends, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. The truth that God was the ultimate authority behind the destruction of Nineveh should shake the proud confidence of those who continue in their sin and rebellion. But it should also, in the same way, be a pillow of comfort to those who've been forgiven by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus tasted all of God's just wrath for you. He swallowed the cup of God's wrath fully for you and for me so that we'll never face it. 
Instead, we look forward to the time when we will be welcomed home to heavenly reward, to eternal joy, all because of God's grace and mercy in Jesus. As we've seen this morning, the God of the Bible commands history. God foretells what will happen. And what he foretells always comes to pass, just as he said. This is seen nowhere more clearly than in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was prophesied long before the birth of Jesus that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, raised in Nazareth, visited by wise men. The Bible predicted Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew 16, 21. It says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is what Jesus was regularly telling his disciples. But they couldn't believe their ears. It was all too much. It seemed impossible. It seemed ridiculous. It seemed laughable. But when all things happened just as Jesus said that they would, on Resurrection Sunday, when the disciples visited the empty tomb, they were greeted by an angel who said in Matthew 28, 6, He is not here, for He has risen just as He said. Come see the place where He was lying. Friends, Jesus is risen. He is risen in fulfillment of prophecy, pre-recorded history. All things happened just as Jesus said they would because Jesus himself is the God who commands history. And Jesus has promised to come back again. At his second coming, He is going to give those who trust in Him eternal joy and blessedness forever in His presence. And this same Jesus who comes back will also exercise eternal judgment on all those who do not believe on Him. But the good news is that the timing of Jesus' second coming hasn't happened yet. Though it is certain, though it is sure, just as sure as the fall of Nineveh, just as sure as Christ's first coming, so certain are we of his second coming. But it hasn't happened yet. Because Jesus is patient. Jesus, the Son of God, is long-suffering. And he's giving all those who do not believe yet an opportunity to believe on him and repent of their sins before it's too late, before judgment day arrives. Because Jesus is the God who commands history. And he has appointed a day when all will stand before him. Friends, this morning, before you leave here, make sure you're on the right side of history. And the right side of the God who commands history by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Christian, this morning you have reason to take courage, to sleep well, to rest in God's sovereign control over all things because He is good, He is strong, He is devoted to your good, and you can trust Him with everything because He's in control. 
and he's the God who commands history. Let's pray together. Lord, give us greater faith than we currently have. Faith in you, not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not in our wisdom, but faith in you and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who on the cross faced the full wrath of God against our sin and rebellion, who satisfied that wrath and purchased our redemption through his blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are the God who commands history. And thank you that the promise of your second coming is just as sure and certain as the promise of your first coming. And just as you fulfilled that first coming in every detail, so you will fulfill the predictions of your second coming. Lord God, may every person in here be ready by trusting in you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.